0: Talking about um, what is sin, and so hopefully you have a little bit better understanding up to this point of what sin is and, and it's important to understand that there's a distinction between sin and unrighteousness and if you don 't understand that distinction, I think it 's going to throw you for a loop and again, just to reiterate um, there's a, the, the major teaching that you will find today is that sin begins where The major teaching that you will find today is that sin begins where, in your mind, in your mind, in your mind. and so we see again. Now, this is from Dr. Schaefer's booklet, "Or uh, Maturing in Christ," and I like his chart here. Only I would put thoughts before lust, right? So you have thoughts, and then those thoughts can develop into lust, right? Not all of the thoughts that you have become lust. I mean, there's a lot of thoughts you have that they don't—they just come through your mind and they go out. It's not that you know you don't even think about them. It's not something that you crave. You know, I mean, but there's a lot of different thoughts that go through your mind. What did I hear? Thousands of thoughts every day go through your mind. Thousands, and not a lot of them are lust. And so, what what has happened is that they've conflated thoughts to be lust. Right, and so in the minds of a lot of people, thoughts and lust are the same thing. If you think it, it's lust. Well, that's not true, and you know, and I would defy you to go to scripture and show me where that's true. You won't find a scripture that says that's true. But so these thoughts can become cravings. Let's use that word because that's the English word that a lot of people would understand. It's a craving. And so when you crave something, it can lead to, um, where you have this, um, so the lust becomes one on, one's own. You have bad lust and then you retain that lust, right? So there's some bad lust that come to your mind and then they just go out, right? Or you, it doesn't, it doesn't interest you. Or you look at it and say, oh no, that, that's not possible, you know, um, Maybe you saw an actor or actress on TV and you said, boy, wouldn't it be great to have an affair with them, right? I've, you know, Rock Hudson back in the day, right? (laughs) She was shaking her head no, but he was the leading man and everybody said, Rock Hudson! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But you have all of these different people that are heralded in the society, um, and you see in the secular world, a lot of the women look at their husbands and say, you're not that guy, right, <laughs> or the, uh, vice versa. Uh, but, you know, some of those thoughts, they just go out of their mind because you know that it's not possible that that would ever happen, and, you know, you wouldn't do it anyway, I would hope. And so then the lust, when it's retained, becomes one's own. So you have these lusts from the world system, from the same nature, you're done. No, I didn't give you that particular chart. So that's out of Dr. Schaefer's book oh, on maturing oh, 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 in Christ. So yeah, no, 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 I didn't give you that one. Um, so you, you have to make it your own. And, and why do we say that? Are we just pulling this out of the air? Why do I say that? I'm asking anybody but Don. <laughs> why do I say that? It's in the Bible. It's in the Bible, but where? <laughs> James. James, where? 1, 13, and 15. Okay. So it says each man is tempted when by his very own lust. So a lust comes, You it's, let's imagine when you're going through the cafeteria, and this is why my wife does not like to go to cafeteria places anymore because she's seen too much. You go through the cafeteria line, you take food off the cafeteria, you put it on your plate, You've made that food your own. Hopefully you don't put it back. But you've seen kids that are in places like this, and they do. (laughs) So you've taken that food and you put it on your plate and you've made it your own. It belongs to you, right? And so a lust is similar to that. Now it's not just a general lust from the world system or from Satan or from my sin nature. I've actually made it personal to me. And now I'm dragged away and enticed, James says, which is what constitutes temptation. So here we are. There are people saying that a bad lust is a sin. James is saying it in order to even be tempted, you have to be dragged away and enticed by it. Right. And so then that's temptation. That's what temptation is. I'm enticed, I'm intrigued, I'm dragged away from where my mind should be, and I'm considering this lust to carry it out. And now, um, once I determine I'm going to do it, that's trespass. So we would uh, see from Scripture that all of this um, is not unrighteousness, but right here would be unrighteousness, right? Right? A trespass would be unrighteous. So what people are conflating is they think that trespass, bad lust, all of this is sin because it's occurring in the mind. It's sin. And, you know, the interesting thing, again, I'm just still waiting on the scripture that shows it. And I guarantee you, I can give you a thousand bucks for every time we brought this up and somebody brings up, what's the scripture? Matthew 5. That's the tried-and-true, tested scripture that people will bring up. And it's, again, out of context. And I I will always say, you know, if you take Matthew 5, uh, 20, I think it's 28, literally, how are you going to allegorize Matthew 5, 29? Right? So if 28 is literal, if a man sees a woman facing lust... He's already committed adultery in his heart. Then what about twenty nine? And since your right, eye offend you, pluck it out. <laughs> right. How are you going to allegorize one? Right. And then take the other literal. And then we saw John chapter eight, where they brought the woman in adultery. She really it was defined there as being in the very act. Oh, no, they caught her and she was thinking about adultery in her mind. Well, that's what we would say today. And it's just, I mean, honestly, some of it just gets silly. It really gets silly. And so then trespass, once you determine to do it, then you're looking for an opportunity. Because there's some things you've determined to do. I'm not talking about people in here, but there's people that do this. They've determined to sin. They just didn't have the opportunity to do it, right? But once they have the opportunity, now they do it. And it's sin. And then we'll see later on that that sin can lead to um, some um, correction, shall we say. And so we are on page 11, and um, I think we are. No? 12. 12 at the top of page 12. Thanks, Don. And so we were looking at the sin nature. Now, this is just really an interesting thing. So remember, these lusts come from three different sources. The world system, Satan. And the flesh and the sin nature, I'm going to tell you, it's the hardest enemy to overcome. I, I, anybody could see that. I mean, it's, it's just hard to overcome because it's the enemy that's inside of you. And some, and here's the hard thing is that why is this uh, um, important to understand? Because there's a lot of people Who have thoughts that go through their mind. And they don't understand that the sin nature can put thoughts in your mind. Satan can put thoughts in your mind. The world system can put thoughts in your mind. Thoughts that you don't even want to be there. You don't want them there. Sometimes it stumbles you as the thoughts come to your mind. How could that come to my mind? And you think it's you. Well, it's not. You have other sources. The world system, the flesh, and Satan. That puts thoughts into your mind. Now. As I gravitate and I hold on to that thought and I carry it through, I make it my own. Now, right now, I'm taking it. I've grabbed it. I've made it my own. Now it's become mine. And so, um, but the sin nature is the hardest one. And so on page 12, there are three different terms used to, um, of the fallen nature of man. And so you see the term that is used, you'll see in scripture is the word flesh, Uh, It's a term that traces the fallen nature back to uh, the genetic line going back to Adam. And then you see sin is used, and it's really, you could say, sin nature. And then you have the word carnal or sorkikos, um, which is pertaining to or emanating from uh, this fallen nature, emphasizing a perpetual acting out of the sin nature. And so um, you have the works of the flesh that are talked about, you have, and so you have these categories. If you were to categorize the different works of the flesh, you have sexual lust, uh, sexual works, you have uh, religious and social. And so we have went over this last time in the Christian life, and it doesn't hurt to go over them again as far as some definitions. And so adultery is immoral sexual activity between a man and a woman without marriage being a factor. So, what's happening in the American society today? Is that the uh, basis of truth has been removed, so that people cannot see and identify what's happening in front of them. So these things are easy to identify when you know what Scripture says about them. So what is happening today, though, is that we have this this uh, malaise of uh, 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 uncertainty about what behaviors are. Yes. I think the paper- Yeah, they've renamed things. So, you said the same adultery. They talk about living together or something like that, right? And I think one of the biggest culprits that has done this, and I was reading a book, and it was on uh, the distinctions between, um, uh, come on, uh, the father of psychology, uh, Fried, uh, Sigmund Freud, Sigmund Freud, and um, and C.S. Lewis. And so, one of the things the guy, the author said in that book was that psychology has become so interwoven in the American psyche that people don't even know that they're using it. It has. The, the terms of psychology has become interwoven, the concepts. And what have they done? They've replaced the truth from scripture. Now, I'll give you an example of it, and there's just clear examples you can see. So, homosexuality is not a work of the flesh according to the psychological thing, right? It's a genetic situation, right? Alcoholism, oh no, that's not a work of the flesh. That's a chemical imbalance. So you see that there are points where psychology outwardly conflicts with the truth of what scripture says. And I will tell you that it conflicts in more ways than that. Most people just don't see it. And so I think it's diametrically opposed to what scripture says. I mean, you look at the idea of self-esteem. You're supposed to look at yourself in a high regard when scripture says the total opposite. Right? Now, you can just, I mean, it, it's all of the truth that we had established from the foundation of Christianity has been turned upside on its head. And that's why people are having a hard time coming to conclusions about what's right and what's wrong. And so in a secular world, that's the problem. It shouldn't be that way in the church. But it is, Unfortunately. And so adultery adultery is a immoral sexual activity between a man and a woman without marriage between it being a factor. Fornication is a general term for all kinds of illicit sex. And then you have uncleanliness. Uncleanliness is a retention in the mind, mind's eye of thoughts that are disgustingly filthy and is a perversion of a decent and moral use of the mind. So Here you have it. Now, as someone is doing this, it's an unrighteous thing. But in order to actually take that to a next step, they're going to have to act on that, you see. And it's going to come across as maybe adultery or or some kinds of fornication. And so lasciviousness. I mean, look at these things. Now, we don't call it that. There was a guy that came up with a song called Guy Walking Around with Pants on the Ground. Remember that song? Pants on the Ground, pants on the ground. You know, you're looking like a fool with your pants on the ground. <laughs> well, what is he talking about? These guys walking around sagging and showing their, their undergarments. Well, you know what that is? It's not pants on the ground. It's lasciviousness. That's what it is. And so all of the terms have been changed so that people, you are not able to identify what scripture says is actually going on. And that's the way that the secular world wants it. Because that gives them a lot of latitude to just manipulate and do what they want to do. And so um, and you you hold to what Scripture says, well, you're just being rigid. No, it's actually dealing in truth, reality. Then you have religious lust, and so you have idolatry, which is putting anything in the place of God. And so let's look at that as an example in Colossians, because... In the New Testament, you get some real clear answers of what idolatry is. In the Old Testament, I mean, you see that they're falling down before things and they're worshiping um, uh, statutory idols and and such. Uh, But uh, it became a little bit more clearer in the New Testament the extent of what idolatry is. So notice um, in verse 5, of Colossians chapter three, we'll start with verse one. If you didn't been risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Set your affection uh, on things above, not things on the earth. And so the imperative for the believer to do this, you, you, you know what I find this use a good illustration for this. You set your affections, you know, like those fighter planes, when they zero in on a target. Right. And they lock in on it. And so that's the ideal that you're locking in on what's true when you're under attack from the sin nature about who you are and that the Holy Spirit then is able to uh, accomplish the task. Now, notice he says, you set your affection on things above, not things on the earth, for you are dead and your life is hid to, with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, um, then shall ye also appear with him in glory, Mortify." Therefore, your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanliness, in the affection, evil concupiscence, or really it's um, passions from lust. Okay, so here's another thing that um, I don't think that the unsafe will understand, that one of the components of the sin nature is that there it also produces passions. Passions. Now, where do passions come from? They come from lust. Now, I believe, and I think that, you know, uh, there's not, I don't have a, one scripture that points to this, but I think there's a, t- a lot of scriptures that work together to show you that passions probably are what we would call today um, addictions, right? And what is a passion? It's, you've heard of the movie, The Passion of the Christ. There's a suffering. That's what it is. It's the suffering of the Christ. So passions are sufferings. And where do the sufferings come from? You have engaged in a lust for so long and you've worked it through, worked it through, worked it through. Now it's harder to overcome it. It becomes a passion and it hurts you to not have it. And so uh, the sin nature has that component to it. And so, again, you know, they've redefined things and it makes it harder for people to see what's true. And so you have, um, then this one is fascinating. this witchcraft. Oh, I, I didn't finish, uh, did I? Oh, no, I didn't. Uh, pa- uh, and, and five: inordinate affections, which is uh, really, it's um, um, an evil concupiscence, uh, which is passions from lust, and covetousness, which is idolatry. That's what I wanted to get to. So now, idolatry is not just bowing down to a statue. Um, And you'll see in other areas of scripture it's having a desire for more is what's fueling it. You're not content with your relationship and what God's providing. You want more. So now when I take that thing and I put it in the place of God, I'm making that thing an idol. Anything that I'm putting in the place of God and that thing has more importance than my relationship with the Lord, I can make that thing an idol and it can be anything or anybody. Now, we have American Idol, and I guess that would be an appropriate term for it, right? Because some people idolize, like actors, actresses, athletes. I mean, you've seen people say, I will never wash this hand again. I shook the hand of so-and-so. I will never. I hope you wash it. (laughs) Um, And so you have this that go on in the American culture. And so people have these idols Uh, And so their kids, kids have become idols, right? So you see it today. It used to be that there were no activities on Sunday in America, but now there's all kinds of activities. And you see a lot of people who will sacrifice their relationship with other believers to take their kids to sporting events. And I'm saying that, you know, doing it is a sin, but I'm just saying here people are making a choice. There are people who put their spouse in front of God. And so there's a lot of things you can put in the place of God as you take that and you put that level of importance in front of God. And it's because you're looking for something else. God is not enough. You want more. And so now this one is uh, witchcraft is an interesting thing. I'm going to give you the definition here, but I, I saw a connection here in the New Testament. That's really interesting that I hope will help you to understand what witchcraft is. So it's translated sorcery. And all of these are coming out of Galatians 5. And I think over in Galatians 5, it's translated sorcery. If you turn to Galatians 5 and notice, um, actually in 20, it's translated witchcraft. But some uh, some um, translations of it is, is sorcery. Now, I give you the definition, and I think this is out of Dr. Schaefer's booklet on sorcery. Um, uh, the maturing uh, Christian, religious superstitions are and is the basis of our English term uh, pharmacy. Actually, this is out of Abbott and Smith, I'm sorry, it's the definition here. The term evolved through three different meanings before it was used in the New Testament. First, it had the idea of treating with medicine, second, it came to mean sorcery, describing the rituals and the incarnations practiced by dealers in medicine while preparing their portions. So notice what it is. It's a sleight of hand. And you can see this with uh, uh, magicians, right? They practice a sleight of hand. It's all trickery. And it's meant to um, induce some kind of, um, what would you say, response, an emotional response to what they're doing and I, it's just really interesting and as you see this used. And notice it describes the rituals and the incantations practiced by these dealers in, med, in, med, in medicine while preparing their potions. Uh, third, the usage reflects the attitude of the ones observing the witch doctor or practitioner as he performed rituals involving incantations, fire, smoke, incense. These exhibitions evoked religious awe in the patient or the observer. Remember the Wizard of Oz as they went to the great wizard and what was he doing? He had the big head and fire coming out of his mouth. Would you dare approach the great Oz? And they were just, you know, scared and all of this. Do you know in a a similar fashion, the world system uses this to appeal to the fallen nature of people? It's a sleight of hand. And it's used in religious circles as well. And you say, Kevin, where is that used? I'm glad you asked. Let's give you an illustration just back in Galatians chapter 3. That doesn't use this word for um, uh, pharmacia is the word, which is a very interesting thing because we get our English derivative from it. Pharmacy. Right. And so what they're finding today Uh, there have been certain medicines that they've given people. And I can't remember. There was one particular drug I was reading on a, a few weeks ago, and it was actually for some kind of ailment. Do you know that the placebo group actually performed better than the group with the medication? Think about that. The placebo group performed better than the group with the medication. You know what they come to find? A lot of illness. It's right here. It's right here. And so, well, how else can you give someone a sugar pill? And they get better. How does that work? And so now think about this on a religious point of view. It's happening religiously as well, and I think it's more insidious. Now look at what was happening to the Galatians in verse 1 of chapter 3. Verse 1. So the Galatians, now go back just to get some context in, in chapter 1. They had left a good news And in this good news they left, they left a good news about how to live by grace. That's what this whole book is about. They didn't want to live by grace anymore. They were being convinced to forsake grace and to follow law in order to to show themselves to other people how righteous they are. Right. And so notice this has to be a good news other than the good news of of initial salvation. Don't make the mistake of saying that all the good news or the gospels that you see in the New Testament are the same everywhere you see it. That's not true. If you take that view, then you're going to have these people. Leaving salvation. There's a good news that talks about how you live by grace, you can see it in in Romans chapter 16. And notice in verse 6, he says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of God into another gospel. And so it's about, well, you can lose your salvation. No, that's not the good news that he's talking about here. And the context of the book tells you it's a good news about how to live by grace. And notice in verse 7, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you who would pervert the gospel of uh, really the gospel of the Christ. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach another gospel unto you than that which you have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As I said before, advice. I, and I say now again, if any man preach another gospel unto you, other than that, which you have received, let him be accursed. Now, what is the, the context here? So Paul's going to argue with them in the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2 that the good news that he was preaching was different from the good news that they, were, that they had been given. And what was it? That none of these things about meats and what you eat, none of that has anything to do under grace. And so as you move forward, these Galatian believers have believed that. But these teachers came in and taught them differently. Now notice in, in, in verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, Oh foolish Galatians. I put it up here. Ah, come on. Oh, I thought I put it up there. It disappeared. Oh, there it is. Oh, foolish Galatians. Now, we have a word of which there was a program that we all probably watched as kids. Who has bewitched you? Right? You watched that show, right? Bewitched. That you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth, crucified among you. And so this is a, a word that only occurs here. It's very interesting. And so how people are taking a opposite good news and convincing people that somehow this good news is better. Right? And I think a lot of it it appeals to not allowing the Holy Spirit to produce it in you, but it appeals to some kind of thing that causes people to feel like that they are doing what's right. And so, notice I give you the definition of this word bewitched. It's the word baskanao, and it means to malign. That is, by extension, to fascinate by false representation. Yes? I looked it up in one place, I forget where it was, but they said that it was akin to, that word was akin to putting an evil eye on someone, putting hmm. a curse, but you put the evil eye on you, you know, you put the hex on them. It yeah. really made it sound like it was really strange. That's <laughs> very insulting to see that. But yeah, right? well, but what it is though is, what, what are they doing? They have exchanged one thing, which is the truth, right, about how to overcome their sin natures for something completely different. And so I, I do think that there's a connection here where this appeal can goes to this religious superstition uh, because if you look at what they were doing, they were putting the emphasis on how the outward appearance looked and what people saw from the outward appearance. And you see that. I was talking to a gentleman th- today, and uh, he was telling me we were talking about how different church is today as in, in America it used to be. And uh, he was talking about, yeah, but, In the churches before, there was a lot of um, organized religion. And that's what people were going by, right? And you could say, yeah. He said, you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of the Pharisees and the scribes. And uh, I couldn't disagree with (laughs) him. In a lot of your churches, that's what you had. You had a religious structure of tradition that people went by. And that's an appealing thing to people. But let me show you over where pharmacia occurs again. And we looked at it before in Revelation 18. It's a major component of the world system. And I really think that what has happened is that the world system has invaded the church. And so you see one of the components of the world system with this religious superstition is there's a lot of things that have been baked into the church that has nothing to do with salvation, has nothing to do with God It's nothing but appealing to the religious superstition of men. That's all it's doing. It has no basis in fact and truth at all. In fact, if you took those things out of the churches, your churches probably would be bare. I don't think you'd have a lot of mega churches today, but that's just my opinion. But notice in Revelation chapter 18. Notice what happens as the world system comes to an end. Look at what happens here. <clears throat> so you see in 17, as we talked about before, you have the, the, um, the beast, I mean the, uh, the, the uh, harlot, which is the world system church. So after the rapture occurs, you have all of the religions of the world come together, right? And they join together and form this harlot, and um, then they become a part of the, and with the governmental structure, form this massive thing that is really uh, effective in the tribulation period. And so it's destroyed before the Lord comes back. And so notice what you see in the chapter 18 is they tell you all of the things people gained from this. And let's just, for context, get some, go back a little bit and you can see the destruction of this and um uh, notice in verse 7, how much she has gloriously glorified herself and lived deliciously, so much tormented and sorrow give her. For she has said in her heart, I sit as a queen and I am no widow and see no sorrow. Therefore shall her plagues come on her in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. And the kings of the earth who have committed fornication And have lived deliciously with her, shall bewail her and lament her when they shall see the smoke of her fire burning. And so there is a place where this all is located at, and most people say that it's Rome. And from the description that is given, I mean, it's a great possibility that that's what's happening. So somebody says, well, it's the Catholic Church. No, it's more than the Catholic Church. I think there's Catholic Church, and the Mormons, and the Jehovah Witnesses, and the Muslims, and they're going to all come together and join hands and just have a wonderful time after the rapture occurs, and uh, hey, let them have it. Standing before all for the fear of her torment, saying, "Alas, alas, the great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come, and the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buys her merchandise anymore. The merchandise of gold and of silver and of precious stones and of pearls and of fine linen and purple, uh, purple and silk and scarlet and all fine wood and all manners of vessels of ivory and all manners of vessels of most precious wood and of brass and of iron and of marble and of cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beasts and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves And notice slaves, always been slaves in the world system, always going to be slaves in the world system. You're not going to get rid of it. (laughs) Slaves and notice the souls of men and the fruits that thy soul lusted after. Notice the connection there with the soul and how important that is. Understanding the soul and because it's not saved, it's in a fallen relationship, how it's affected by the world system. And the sin nature, the, the fruits that thy soul lusted after have departed from thee and all the things that were dainty and goodly are departed from thee and thou shalt find them no more at all. The merchants of these things which were made rich by her shall stand afar off for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing and saying, alas, alas, that great city was clothed in fine linen and purple. And here you have that description as of a religious nature. There's something religious about this. And it is because you have this harlot in 17, and that's why she's called a harlot. She's supposed to be representative of the church. That was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour so great riches has come to naught. And every shipmaster and all the company and ships and sailors and many as trade on the sea stood afar off and cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like this great city? And they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, the great city wherein were made rich all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness. For in one hour she was made desolate. Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. And a mighty angel took up a And by the way, if you look at 17, one of the things that I think in this um, in the tribulation period, it looks like that the world system church actually kills as many or more people than the secular governments. Now think about that. <laughs> it's interesting. Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy prophets and apostles of God, has avenged you on her. And a mighty angel took up a millstone and a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall the great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. And the voice of the harpers. Hear all of this? This is all world system stuff, right? The musicians. The piper shall be heard no more at all in thee. No craftsman of whatsoever craft he shall be found no more at all in thee. The sound of a millstone shall be heard no more at all in thee. And the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee. <coughs> excuse me. And the voice of the bridegroom and of the bridesmaid, or the, excuse me, the bride, shall be heard no more at all in thee. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth, And by thy sorceries. And there's our word there for pharmakia. And what are they doing? How did this affect them? I think that this definition gives it to fascinate with false representations. It gives a false impression to people about what is real. You see it all over the world system today. People are buying it hook, line, and sinker. I was telling Joyce today, it occurs to me that if you do not have a foundation of Scripture as truth, there's nothing to tether you to being sucked into this. Right? You'll fall for it hook, line, and sinker, and there's a lot of people who are falling for it. And so, by thy sorceries were all the nations, what? Made to be deceived. Something caused them to wonder, well, what are they wandering from? They're wandering away from the way things really are. They don't believe it. They don't believe it. And so something is making them to wonder. what? They see some other shining object over here. That is being held out. And says, oh no. We are on the cutting edge of what's new. We are progressive. That's the word right. And so. They think that they're on the cutting edge. Of something new. And it's the same old. Tired thing. It's the sin nature. And the world system. Knows how to play it like a fiddle. Yes. That brings to mind. One of the things the world does is talk about glory, money, glory. Right. That's, that's what this is. Yeah. When they're seduced by this. It looks like it's for real, but there's no substance to it. Nothing. And and you can see it with people who get things, or they reach a top, reach to a, a certain level, and it's still not satisfied. So then they try to find something else. Still not satisfied. How people go through certain spouses, how some people have gone through five, six, seven spouses, can't find what they're looking for. And so uh, the world system is very intoxicating. And I think that this witchcraft is a centerpiece of how Satan has constructed the world system to appeal to the sin nature in order to reel it in like a lure. He just reels it in. And so it's funny as you you listen to people, uh, we were talking, me and Joyce, about it. The only way, if you didn't have any context from scripture to weigh what people were saying, I mean, you could see how people would be deluded, right? If you didn't have the context of what was true to measure it by. And so this, I mean, I really think this is a big part of it. And so you have this witchcraft and then you have hatred, which is open hostility. Variance is the departure of some from the whole, uh, and can be the result of two groups being of a different mind and judgment. Then you have emulations, which is a competition based upon jealousy, wrath. So you have wrath is an inward burning. And this is a work of the flesh. Now, you will have to carry this to its conclusion for it to become sin. So let's just give an example here. You're talking to someone that, you, that has been picking on you. And as you get around this person, you just get this inward burning. I know none of you have experienced this, but I have, so I'll tell you what it's like. I mean, you get this inward burning when you're around that person. Now, if you act on that, you can take that inward burning and you can act on that and you can sin. But it's an a, a inward burning uh, that you have a wrathfulness, but it's an, in, it's an in, inside thing. And then you do have, uh, I think we saw ekthros, which was an outward uh, hostility, Uh, hatred. It's a hatred, it's an outward hostility. Um, And so you have strife, which is debate and contentions, and then seditions, which is a separation within one group. So you have a group and then they divide within the group, uh, seditions. And then heresies is an adherence to religious opinion, contrary to, I wouldn't say more than church dogma, because that would, you know, I don't want to mix that up with the Catholic (coughs) Church. But according to scripture. And so what, so what happens with heresy is someone's not denying that the Bible says something, they're misapplying it, right? They're not going to deny that the Bible says this. For example, you have people who don't believe, uh, who believe that the church is going through the tribulation period. They don't deny the rapture. They just say it's going to be at a different time than what God says it's going to be. That's heresy. Or people who say, we're under law today. That's a heretic. People who maintain that we're under law today, when it clearly says in the New Testament that we're under the dispensation of grace, they are, her- they are heretics. And Paul tells uh, Titus in Titus chapter 3 and verse 10, warn a heretic once, warn him twice, after that have nothing to do with him. Because you could believe such a person that believes that is conceited. And so you have heresy, you have envyings, uh, which is um, jealousy or um, zeal. And so there's nothing wrong. You, you, and you look at this in the New Testament. You have uh, good zeal and you have bad zeal. And so good zeal, Paul says, I'm zealous over you with a godly jealousy. Right? That's good. Because you're zealous for something that is not for your personal benefit. And so jealousy in a negative sense is that when you're jealous and you covet something that someone else has. Then you have idolatry, which we've talked about. It's a work of the flesh, which is worship of idols. And then you have the social lust which would be murder, drunkenness, revelings, and notice he says, and such like, dot, dot, dot. So they're coming up. The fallen nature of man invents ways to do evil. I mean, some of the things that they come up with um, um, on the Internet, for example. um, you You can see works of the flesh with a lot of that. And so absent of Scripture's description of these, Now, it's just anybody's opinion about what it is, right? You can name it whatever you want to name it. But this is why they don't like scripture. Even in the church, no one wants to bring scripture into play because now it gets rid of the subjective nature of how people see things, right? And they don't want that. They want to be able to languish in just some kind of mamby-pamby world, right? Where there is no objective truth. And that's what's happening. And so, uh, and so you see those works of the flesh. And so you have the Satan. You have the uh, world system. And you have, um, you have Satan, the world system, and uh, the flesh. And so these all are going to be the source of these bad lusts. It's going to be one of these. So it's not like you're dealing with. Um, a whole plethora of things that is going to cause you to be tempted to sin, there's only three categories that it's going to come from. It's not a whole plethora of things. It's really not complicated. And so you have the world system, you have your sin nature, and you have Satan. And so these cause, these bad lusts, now again, I would put thoughts over here because thoughts come first. Right? And then from these thoughts come bad lust now there's thoughts that come to your mind and okay so I told you about the guy who said that he was sitting in church one day and a thought came to his mind I wonder what it would be like to slap the hat off that person's head well don't tell people these kind of things sometimes there's too much information <laughs> I think I was kind of stumbled when he told me that <laughs> but you know you have thoughts come to your mind that are just crazy and most of them come through your mind and they go out But then there are some thoughts that come to your mind and you say, oh, well, that one, no, that's not a bad, that's, whoa, yeah, hold on a second. I want to hold on to that one. And you start craving it. Now, the result is you retain that and you, it becomes your own. You say to that little lust, hey, why don't you come over here and sit by me? I like you. (laughs) And you hold on to it. You cradle it, you're thinking about it, and so now you are fallen into temptation. Now, we know this for a fact uh, from over at James. Let's look at James. James chapter 1. So in verse 13, he says, James chapter 1, let no man say... When he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. So are we we just making it up when we say that lust is not sin? Or are we reading actually here with your very eyes that it says it here? Now, notice he's going to give it a progression of it. Verse 15. Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And so he says each man is tempted. So in order to be tempted, you have to have a lust. You can't be tempted without a lust. You have to have something that you crave to do. Now, I, I'll give you an illustration, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll preface this again. It's not because I was a good guy that what you find, and we—I didn't put that chart up here this time—is that varying uh, aspects of the fallen nature. It's different for each person. Some people w- uh, will crave certain things of the fallen nature, and you know why? Do it, why is that? Maybe your background, maybe things you've been exposed to, or whatever. And other people will crave other things, right? So, for example, I'm in college. I'm around a lot of dope heads, and they're doing drugs. I had no desire to do it. But that doesn't make me better than anyone else. It just means that was not the fallen part of the fallen nature that I was tempted by. You see, and so then I would be tempted by something else in the sin nature, right? And so it's it's different. And so whenever that becomes something that becomes a craving, you're tempted, and now you're looking for an opportunity. Once you say to yourself, I'm going to do this, boom, you've trespassed. And that is not right. It's unrighteous. Why is it unrighteous? Because God has provided everything that we need not to ever say this. No reason for us to even ever do that. It's an unrighteous thing to determine to do it. So now, once I determine to do it, I've trespassed. All I'm looking for is the opportunity. And notice he says here, and when when, uh, sin has conceived, and he uses a birthing term here, that it's come together, this lust and this opportunity has come together, normally it brings forth sin. Now, you know, you can read a lot of books. I don't know. I've read a lot of them, and none of them describes this process. And I told you, the only guy that I've come close to actually saying what Scripture says is Warren Worsby. And it was in his book on Commentary on James. And he actually, if you've not heard of Warren Worsby, he used to be a radio broadcaster who taught the Bible on the radio. And he came close to saying that uh, sin is an act. Actually, he pretty much says it. Didn't get it really as clear as you you would want to see it, but he says it. And so, um, and that's really important to know. Why do we keep harping on this? Because if you think sin is something that you think, you're sentencing yourself to not ever have victory. How can you have victory if you think that the moment that the thought occurs to me or the moment that there's a craving in my mind, I've sinned? If you think that, how will you ever have victory? No, we'll just stay with what scripture says and we can prove it from scripture that this is the process. And so um, that's important to see. And so we'll stop right there. We'll pick up on uh, page 13, Lord willing, next week.